Hello, and welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Jonathan Tran on racism and religion in America. Jonathan Tran holds the George W. Baines Chair of Religion at Baylor University. His research focuses on linguistic theory, theology and ethics, and critical theory. His most recent book is Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism with Oxford University Press. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy it. So, you know, so there's all kinds of reasons the diversity stuff doesn't work. But what's really interesting is how rarely, if ever, these institutions ask whether they work before they implement them. Mm. Uh, the, the question of empirical evidence for why we institute these things in our, in our, um, in our institutions just never comes up. And remember, these are million dollar investments, these programs. Um, and so why do we do them? Well, there's all kinds of questions, the political heat, the moral imperative, but maybe one of the most cynical, but maybe unfortunately true is one of the reasons institutions use them, as you might guess, is because they provide legal, legal cover. If there is some kind of lawsuit that sues an institution for being racist or sexist, the institution can use as evidence against that they that they have instituted systemic attempts to address, say, sexism, patriarchy, white nationalism, racism, what ha- what have you. Now, of course, this just moves the bubble somewhere else under the rug because you might ask, well, why do courts believe them? Um, because there's no more evidence in the court, you know, use of this, you know, supposed evidence than in the in institutions higher ed or in churches or what, what have you. I am curious, though, if you don't think these programs work and we see evidence that they don't work effectively as much as we would like, what do we do instead? Because, I mean, I do I do have personal stories, my own story and stories of a group of interfaith leaders that I work with that just went to Montgomery, Alabama to uh, experience the museum there and to do a civil rights tour because of exploring uh, these kind of topics in this kind of setting. It did in, it did impact them. It did change them. Where do we move if these programs aren't effective? Where do we move and how do we start having these conversations? Because while I agree, you know, pointing out that you're sexist or you're racist is hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. We can't change the systems if we don't get people thinking about how they're participating in it. And so I'm I'm Um, just curious of like, what's our alternative here? Because systemically, these systems may not do what we hope they do, but they at least open the door to a conversation for a lot of people that would never have that conversation. And so if we're not going to do it this way, how do we do it? Yeah, I mean, I think for, you know, 50 years, we've been thinking that the individual conviction out of an experience like going and, you know, visiting the Civil Rights Museum or the newly minted kind of lynching museum that individual conviction would change. And again, it would, um, you know, trickle up or down. We would ask larger questions. I think, again, this is D'Angelo's vision that enough DEI training will lead to enough personal conviction that it will lead to a collective set of questions. The the difficulty is it just hasn't. Um, And we've been at this for decades now. In order to understand that, then we need to kind of step back into the larger history. So diversity training and DEI training, again, rose in the 1960s. 
we all remember that one of the primary things that initiated this set of questions was a, a set of large scale conversations about our world, about our society. And this is the various freedom struggles of the late, like, late 1960s and early 70s that had everything to do with gender equity, uh, sexual revolution, um, race, civil rights movements, questions of imperialism, colonization, et cetera, et cetera. These were large-scale societal issues. Um, and it was understood then that in order to change these, we would need large-scale societal issues. Mm -hmm. That there was some role how, how individuals felt, but really what we needed to do is rethink how we distribute resources, rethink how wage income works, right? Uh, not just simply in terms of, say, racial wage disparity, but larger questions about an entire society. And you can understand this in the trajectory of, say, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's own thinking on these issues, which begins, of course, with local considerations of racism, but opens up for him to questions of capitalism and imperialism, that these three become yeah. a kind of deeply intermixed reality. And so for him, folks like him, Bayard Rustin, a number of these folks, uh, both in America and across the world, the realization was, well, we need to step back and ask some large questions. Right, a large question is a question like this. Um, during BLM two, Black Lives Matters two, uh, which happened, you know, in the middle of COVID in America, there was a question about quote unquote defunding the police, and this was an alarming question because it sounded like we were going to get rid of police officers and police departments. Really, the force of the question was this: is is police and prisons the best way to think about inequality? Um, about poverty, about histories of oppression and exploitation. Should we rather think of redistributing those monies towards bettering our society, um, not just taking the negative approach, um, but thinking more broad scale? But how do we think about resources? How do we think about one another? Um, what is the future we're building towards? Police and prisons is really just policing a reality and then imprisoning those we can't police. So that's that's a large question that, you know, BLM almost forced what I sometimes call a conversation of a lifetime, which is, is this the best way for cities and governments to organize around these questions? So that's the kind of large scale questions that were coming out of the 60s. Well, what the, what the 60s and then the 70s ran into was a massive buzzsaw called neoliberal capitalism which was the agreement on the part of the government and the, and, and, the Fed, and, and the market, essentially, that in order to survive eventualities like the freedom struggles that were struggling against the rise of global capitalism, what they need to do is get in bed with each other and make sure that stuff never happens again. And so they set up an amazing infrastructure built around largely the banking industry. We saw a version of this again in 2008. Um, which was we're going to double down on the banking industry, whatever the banking industry does, and it has what it increasingly does is move into something now called finance capitalism, um, which is largely about speculative monies. Um, what we're going, what the what the world is going to do is organize around this, and this will be the bulwark against freedom struggles of various kinds. So then what happens in the midst of this is what's, what is seen in the freedom struggles of the 60s, get, it gets individualized. We're not going to touch the structures and systems. We're going to leave it up to individuals. Um, 
And this is the large backdrop around which diversity um, inclusion, uh, DEI stuff um, happens. So then you and okay. I go to these amazing civil rights movement tours and we have these convictions, right? Just like, let's say the professional DEI worker, but she perpetually is going to bang her head up against a structural system that's locked into place by a combination of this neoliberal capitalism and the systems of anti-democratic legislation that locks it into place. So the structures and systems have been taken off the table. The only yeah. thing left for us is to feel bad about our own agency and what we can do, right? And then this is matched by a series of legislative actions, um, say, against collective unionization, against class uh, organizing, um, the kind of doubling down the baking industry, the real estate market that increasingly is suburbanized, right? The visceration of rural communities because of the land grab of multinational corporations on farming, right? So you see all this solidification. And then there's a, there's a very kind of curious turn in the academy called the cultural turn, uh, right? Which is the turn away from material empirical analysis of things to kind of these cultural logics. That's what it was called at places like Yale. And now it's just, you know, you, you basically have an entire system. And so what's left at the end of that? Well, there's very little talk about structures and systems. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's now up to, you know, the three of us going to, on a freedom tour um, yeah. and then wishing the world were better, but all the structures and systems have been taken out of our hands because of this global neoliberal capitalism and its anti-democratic precedents, right? So. That's kind of where we're at. So sorry to give you a long history, but it, it I think it helps contextualize. No, it's helpful. Yeah, why you people like you and me, uh, you know, again, these DEI workers who are, to me, most courageous people I know, go after this work, but they can't actually touch anything, right? And this is beyond, again, this is beyond the question of whether the diversity stuff works or not. It, it just empirically doesn't. But even if it did work, it's not clear that it would be doing much other than diversifying the managerial classes like people like me professors right who are gatekeepers to uh, yeah into a society which really caters to a very small part of the world remember remember that the wealth disparity is growing and it's growing yeah. exponentially at this point it's growing so severely especially as we're seeing the growth of our own oligarchs here in the united states that are, you know it's just more and more of the same so I'm just with that explanation, I'm curious, uh, did you choose to emulate uh, Max Weber's title of his book on purpose? And yeah, what's I mean, behind that, that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the, the, the title of the book is a good question. Originally, the book was going to be called Yellow Christianity. Mm. But uh, mm -hmm. the, the very good people at Oxford University Press said, oh, that's a completely unworkable title. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they noted my point of trying to be provocative and it was going to be just too provocative. Um, yeah, I mean, the the spirit of racial capitalism is a nod to Weber as well as to certain, say, Marxist analysis, um, but it's also a nod to religion, which plays a massive role in the book. Um, so, so that's what it was trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I mean, I just want to go back to an earlier, uh, um, just another kind of data point. So like, for example, if we understand these broad, if we try to think as broadly as possible, and that's what really what one of the books is trying to say is, look, I know we all feel this at a personal, interpersonal level, maybe in our families, or our neighborhoods, but we need to continue to press towards the widest possible analysis. Mm -hmm. 
because the widest possible analysis will introduce the widest possible remedies um, to how to address this, because otherwise it's always going to be the head banging uh, recital, right? And so, so for example, when we think about the racial wealth disparity in this country, which is usually the one of the primary data points we show to say that this is a racial issue, is we want to think about the racial wealth disparity within the larger wealth disparity. So, for example, Matt Brunig and the good people at the uh, People's Project, which is kind of a political economic think tank, um, have shown that the racial wealth gap, which is what we tend to think about, uh, we need to think about more broadly in terms of the wealth gap as such, kind of what you're just talking about. So they show, for example, that if we moved all African-Americans to the upper middle class of our society, um, upper middle uh, class of our society, it would only take about 0.03% of the GDP. Um, but doing so would keep 75% of the wealth gap in place. Uh, because the wealth gap is not between the middle class or the lower classes. The wealth gap is between the top part that owns the vast majority of wealth and the rest of us who are fighting over breadcrumbs. Mm -hmm. And so what often becomes a kind of racial animus uh, between, say, poor white folks and poor black folks yep. and poor Asian folks is a part of this political economy. And what folks like what you know W.E. Du Bois has shown, argued for like 100 years, is this is what race always was. It was the introduction of this myth as a divide and conquer strategy, right, to get poor people to go at each other's throats over race while elites get off scot-free. Um, that's, you know, so we say, so poor white folks say, well, who's to blame for our lot in life? Well, it's not our employers or the people setting how property is arranged. It's those black people, you know, they may be poor too, but they're really the reason mm -hmm. we're to blame. And so what Du Bois showed in, you know, in his masterpiece, Black Reconstruction is exactly this, that, you know, Reconstruction America, you have poor black, poor white farmers trying to struggle in the plantation dominated South. Um, but rather than uniting around a new consensus, a new political consensus, uh, they just go to war, you know, namely what poor white people go to war against black people thinking they're to blame. Yeah. Right? That's what I mean by the ideology of this stuff. Yeah. It, it, this is head, head banging for sure for, <laughs> for most people, even listening and myself included as I'm listening to you. And um, I'm, I'm, we're going to get to some hope and some examples because I know you provide those in your book and you did when, when you're with us here in Waco, when you talked at Bear Arms. But um, I, I'd like to talk about politics for a little bit, if, if possible, because I think often we find ourselves in these same battles um, with identity politics and um, certain party thinks, well, if we just all voted this way, then we would get rid of, of these racial disparities and we would be less racist and we may even be anti-racist. I mean, we convince ourselves of this, of this narrative if we just check the box here. Um, but you had made a comment about the 2016 election of a certain candidate that made some comment that kind of brings us all back together. It created a picture for most people that we all remember one group of people got really mad about this comment and the other group of people were like, well, yeah, yeah whatever. But it, it kind of just, well, so... I'll let you. I'll let you kind of go from there and kind of talk about this and how this plays into politics. Uh, well, uh, if you could say which particular maddening uh, incident, because <laughs> there are several. There, there, say say there, more about what you're thinking. There's a certain a certain candidate that that talked about the deplorables, and um, 
and, and that person lost, uh, Hillary Clinton lost. Um, but there was a certain, I, I think a lot of people that thought, well, if we just vote this way, then we would, we would be less racist today. And then she creates that further divide by making the comment, not, not looking at the deeper issues in which you're getting at here. So right. would that have been a time in history or could it still be to look back and say, let's, let's go back here. Let's talk about this, this, because, um, that might've been an opportunity. I mean, clear, clearly it was an opportunity in, in, in the election to go one way, you know, <laughs> she lost mostly because of that comment. Um, but do you have any hope in politics, the two party system, or do you think it's just, a it's all a big game. And, and we, okay. and we, we finally were able to see sort of like we, we behind the veil right there on the spotlight for, for everybody to see, like, see, we're all the same here. <laughs> I mean, well, can I, can I just add the counterpoint to that? She may have lost because of deplorables. He goes on and continues to win even while bragging about sexually assaulting women. I mean, right. what what are we doing here? Yeah, I mean, the the behavior of Trump and Trumpians towards, um, you know, Secretary Clinton's um, being a woman is one of the most deplorable moments in U.S. history, electoral politics, and the fact that it was just given a pass. Um, like, you know, it's par for the course to do this kind of stuff. Not, you know, and that doesn't even get into the, the vile violence of the man himself. Um, but the mistake that that Clinton makes, and this is true of, of um, say, the Clinton political culture in general, which I don't think uh, President Obama is all that far from, what is part of this neoliberal capitalist order. Because remember, under Clinton, uh, under Bill Clinton, is where you begin to see the solidification of the so-called left around neoliberal capitalism, his infamous words, it's about the economy, right? It, namely, it's about prosperity, even though prosperity accrues only to some people. And so the Clintons are part of the left that is committed to the neoliberal capitalist order. Um, and you saw this in 2016 when Hillary essentially made the decision that the, the white, the electorate that was comprised of, say, the poor white, poor white folks, mostly in rural communities, are deplorable morally because they're all racist uh, and politically irrelevant because they don't constitute a, enough of a vote. Well, she's clearly wrong. She was clearly wrong on the ladder, right? She needed that vote in a way that at least Obama had the sense of trying to garner. Um, and obviously, she's wrong on the former. Um, but it was that kind of, uh, say, left of middle thinking uh, that is committed to a, an elite view of the world, right? Let's say the highest levels of the educated classes that can only see the uneducated as racist. Because, of course, going back to the orthodox view of racism, Racism is a function of lack of information, right? And maybe you only get this kind of information if you go to places like Yale or something. Um, so, so whereas, right, and you saw elements of this in some other parts of the Democratic Party, but you also can see elements of it even in the right of people who are going to say, well, no, there's actually political possibilities across issues of race, uh, on issues of justice that can agree on issues of, say, gender equity as well. Um, and so 
And so with the Bernie Sanders campaign, you have the attempt to try to think of race and class together. Now, to some people, they never quite get to the race part. And that's partly right, that there's parts of democratic socialism that doesn't ever get clear of how powerful race plays as an ideological role. I think some social democratic socialists think that, you know, going back to my analysis earlier, which is just a democratic socialist analysis that says race is ideological justification. I think a lot of Americans tend to think it's just one among many, whereas race plays an irresolvable, I mean, an inextricable role uh, in the West in term, and the North in terms of its, its ideological power. So Black Marxists were the ones that pointed this out to their, say, their Marxist brothers and sisters, that race isn't just incidental to the story, it's integral to the story. Mm-hmm. It's not clear that the the Bernieites, as they feel the burn, ever quite get there. And that's quite, probably why they're not able to convince a lot of people of color to join in, right? But the main problem here is with uh, with Clinton, um, right? And so it's the combination of a, a serious political miscalculation, a problematic moral analysis, but we can never underestimate just the utter violence of the patriarchy. Um, those are all Those all play a role. That's just to say, even if we got the past the patriarchy and we didn't excuse the violence of the Trump campaign uh, on issues of gender, then if, if Hillary Clinton had, would be pres- if she was president, then we would see a same continuation of the neoliberal capitalist order. Nothing would have changed there. Um, yeah. So, so whether, you know, the question you're asking is what hope do I have in politics? So I have, always have hope in politics. If we mean by politics is the organizing of communities around, say, people who get around gathered together in local breweries right uh this is there's an amazing movement afoot or there has been in the uk called blue labor blue is their red and red is our blue kind of thing uh basically liberals and conservatives finding each other around pub culture because what do they all recognize when they gather for uh dinner and beers every night well they're all being eviscerated they're all under attack right uh and uh, they need to gather in these local communities that often combine very progressive liberal politics with often very conservative religious communities because these are the folks that hang out in these pubs. Um, and then you can ha- you have an organizational feature. So I always have hope in those politics, but we need to be pretty s- sober about what we're talking about. We're talking about the the market and politics in lockstep, and the way this usually works is. Well, the market owns most politicians um, in terms of freezing out most people from the democratic process. And now you have the introduction on the part of the right of blatant lies that somehow have been believed about the electoral process. So you had an electoral process already that was super precarious, now under threat of perpetual insistence uh, on the part of right politicians that you know no election can be trusted and once you introduce that in the air it's not clear you ever get back mm. yeah yeah I, I, I i've been wondering about that lately too and uh, it's not not giving me much hope <laughs> so yeah. and maybe perhaps that's on like the macro level um and you you seem to have more hope in the micro level which is kind of my heartbeat anyway um you know, because I think in a lot of ways, like we think even federally and states, states for that matter, people forget like, oh, states rights people, which Texas that we're big into that. Go, well, there's still regulation there. There's still they're still owned as well. Um, 
you know, and, and you might feel better about yourself and sleep better at night if you vote for certain somebody who's not an asshole, um, but they're still owned by, like you're saying, these markets and, and uh, you know, we're a country run by corporations. Not for yeah, and I think the problem, just to kind of complete the extremely grim picture <laughs> analysis, is that the problem on the left is that rather than mobilizing against this, like the left traditionally has as the left, it's increasing, and this is certainly true of Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, it's increasingly mobilizing around constitu constituent identities, right? It's it's identity politics. And so, um, and it it tends to reinscribe the very racial categories that any true political economic analysis would make us put into question. And so, uh, then everything becomes simply about race, divorced from all other empirical realities. Now, is race important? Obviously it is. Or is racism important? Obviously it is. I've written a whole book about it. But what makes it important, what makes it deadly, is its entrenchment with these other realities. But you have large swaths of the left that think that's all that matters, right? And then you have these bureaucratizations, institutionalizations, so they care about how certain, you know, lot, well, not certain, lots of universities now are just moving towards identity politics, dominating the intellectual conversation on university campuses, uh, where a, a high-valued uh, commitment to, say, diversity or difference, which is a good thing in and of itself, uh, becomes built into an elitist culture. And so then everything becomes about race. Well, then you're not going to be surprised when some people who are racial people begin to look elsewhere because they don't really care about whether you recognize them as a Latinx Hispanic person. What they're really interested in is whether the government can help their kids get access to education. They really care about schools. They really care about healthcare. And they're tired of left politics, making everything about identity uh, in a way that runs roughshod over actual empirical needs that most people have. That's why you see these kind of bizarre things on the right of you know, with Trump, where you have these people of color, Trumpians, um, because it's not like the left is offering them many ways to go. Um, and, you know, in the future, I mean, the future of the right is probably going to be some version of Trumpianism. But there's also a really interesting future of a different kind of right, which may become the, the ironically, the party of class, the lower class, because they, they will recognize how the Democratic Party has basically left class out of its analysis. Again, amazing considering its history. And if if the right is going to be the one that says, "Look, whoever you are, we'll build a new political consensus around access to healthcare," the folks on the left shouldn't be too surprised if they're losing folks in large numbers. Thanks so much for listening to part two of our interview with Dr. Jonathan Tran. We'll bring you the rest next week and as we talk about climate and how that intersects with our discussion on racism, politics, and religion. Thank you so much for listening to the Brew Theology Podcast. If you want to know more, you can find us at brewtheology.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology and on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. We also want to let you know if you are in the Dayton area, there is a new chapter and you can find them on our website. Keep an eye out for new chapters that are starting up right now. And if you're interested in starting a Brew Theology chapter, please reach out to Ryan or Janelle at brewtheology.org and we'll let you know what it takes to start your own community. Thanks so much and we'll talk to you next time. Cheers. Cheers.